Hi, it's Andre from Mental Health here and it's the end of the Closing the Gap SMI meeting. You can hear people filing out uh, here in York. I'm here with Gordon Johnston from the Scottish Research Collective who presented right at the top of the programme today. Um, And Gordon, you made a really interesting comment, I thought. You spoke about the mortality gap as a human rights issue. What did you mean by that? I think I mean, the fact that people with mental health conditions die on average 20 years earlier than the general population is a human rights issue. We all have the right to health, and I think the fact that there's such a large gap and a gap that is even growing is, is frankly scandalous. And if there was any other group in society that was dying 20 years earlier, we'd have people jumping up and down and politicians demanding that something changes. When it's mental health, it doesn't seem to get quite the same attention as it might if it was another group within society. So why is that? Why are people with mental health issues, and particularly severe mental illness, subject still to such inequality and discrimination? I think... And it it, it comes down to the stigma that is still within society around mental health. I think we, we know from various pieces of research that that is beginning to decrease, but it still very much exists within society generally. People think that there, there, there is something wrong with you if you have a severe mental illness, that in some way it's your fault, that in some way you make a lesser contribution to society. I think all of this comes together to, to create the type of stigma that, I mean, frankly, when we talk about stigma, what we're talking about is discrimination. And when you think about the kind of public health messages that come out to the general population in the UK in terms of healthy lifestyle and eating and exercise, etc., do you think those are appropriate and useful to give to people with severe mental illness, or do you think we need other messages? I think the, the, the facts behind the messages are probably undeniable. And I think we all know if we took more exercise, smoked less, drank less, eat more fruit, we'd all probably be healthier. I think the way that those are delivered perhaps has to be different within mental health. And it's, it's no good saying you should reduce your weight if you're taking three pills every day which have a side effect of making you gain weight. It's just not going to work. There's no point in telling you to take more exercise or to go on five-mile walks twice a week if you have severe depression and find it very difficult to get out of bed in the morning, let alone do anything more strenuous. There are things that can be done, but I think they have to be a bit more nuanced and a bit more perhaps subtle and perhaps more targeted about the way we do it and the way we encourage people. There is also clearly a link between mental health and and poverty and you know within this austerity climate um, many people live in areas where frankly simple things like buying fresh fruit every day just just isn't possible. Yeah and this network is very broad isn't it in terms of the kinds of things it's going to cover you know at, at the heart of it you've got very conventional things like smoking cessation services but then we've also got things like green space and blue space and creativity. Have you got a sense of what areas you think are going to be most useful for people with severe mental illness to kind of explore more? Mm. I I think, I mean, my my approach is always to create a menu of opportunities. Um, You know, people with Lived, mental, lived experience of mental health are no more a homogenous group than people with red hair or people with brown eyes. So, you know, if you asked what do people with brown eyes need in life, people would look at you and say, well, what a ridiculous question. It should be the same with mental health. 
I think there are some very good things going on around green space. Um, up in Inverness, um, far north of where I live, British Waterways are introducing a series of um, nature walks that take people a little bit out of town. You know, not not strenuous walks. Some of them are only a mile or so, so you know, not something that's unachievable. But they take people to an environment that's perhaps a little unfamiliar to them, but good for them. It takes them out with a group of other people, so there is that kind of social aspect to it, um, tackling social isolation. I think the arts is a great method of um, bringing people together. It's something in which we all know that you know meetings don't appeal to everybody. But, you know, come along to a drama group will appeal to some people who might not go to other forms um, of, of social intercourse. It's also a good way of getting messages over about stigma. So, you know, films, drama presentations, dance presentations on mental health can be good ways of getting that sort of message into the general community and challenging some of the assumptions that are there, as well as being very good for the people who take part. So I think there's, there's such a range of things we can do, all of which will have an impact for some people. And if we give everyone some opportunity, then hopefully everyone will be able to find something that appeals to them on that menu. Yeah. And you're a lived experience researcher. Um, why is it important that we involve people with lived experience in this kind of network? And give us some examples of how you think that's going to happen with closing the gap. So I, I, I think there are, there are two ways in which having researchers with lived experience is beneficial. First is simply the, the increased understanding you get. You know, for, for, for me, mental health is not an academic subject. It's something I live with. Um, it's something I have experience of the, the highs and lows of and can talk about that and bring that into a research context. The other thing that we find with our work is that when you are talking to people who have lived experience of mental illness, asking them questions, asking them to relate some of their own stories, you get a far richer dialogue if they know that the person they're talking to has been there themselves, understands what they're talking about. And sometimes you, you hear people talking a bit in shorthand. They'll talk about, you know, I was in hospital and I had some of the issues. Well, you know what it's like. And they won't say those sort of things to someone they perceive as, as being just an in inverted commas an academic or someone whose who's understanding is perhaps purely from books and learning rather than from their own experience. So I think what we can add is, is that richness to the dialogue and that point of view that comes from our own experience. And how's it going to happen? Or is it too early to say within this network? I think what's happened to me today is the number of times that academics and researchers have talked about that involvement. Um, we know quite often involvement can be tokenistic. We know quite often involvement happens because people have to tick the box on the grant form that says they've done involvement. What I'm hearing today is a genuine commitment from across the board, from academics in different universities, from different agencies, to make that involvement real and genuine and from the beginning. So it's about all of us sitting down together, clarifying what the issues are and what the questions are. So I'm, I'm a great believer that unless you have the right questions in the first place, you're probably not going to get the right answers at the end. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Great stuff. Thanks, Andrew.